University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. This summer, the great Hale family uh, converged into one beach house to celebrate my parents' retirement and dad's birthday and 4th of July. Just to clarify, that was all of my brothers with their children, so that was 15 people ages 63 to almost two years old. What could go wrong? Or maybe what could go right? (laughs) We did fairly good in close quarters together with all of our different eating and sleeping and living habits, but one of the more quirkier disagreements arose one night around the car table as we were playing an innocent game of of Texas Hold'em. When my dad asked if anyone wanted Oreos, my sister-in-law had gone to pick up a few things from the store and Oreos were on the list. That's when the problem arose. What could possibly be wrong? Were they, were they stale? No. Were they one of those weird flavors? No. Did my two teenage nephews break into the box and there was very few left? Absolutely not. The problem arose when three-quarters of the family realized that she had purchased normal Oreos versus double-stuff Oreos. First introduced in 1975, and brought back in 2008, Oreos offers consumers twice the amount of stuff that goes in between those chocolate wafers. So a disagreement ensued between my sister-in-law when she announced to the rest of the family that she thought that double stuff had way too much stuff in it, and she was quickly shot down by everybody else who completely disagreed with her. Just in case you're wondering, in 2013, they actually did a study that found that double stuff Oreos only have 1.86 more stuff Uh, than normal Oreos, so I guess that sounds a little catchier to call them double stuff versus 1.86 Oreos. At the core of our text this morning, in this new series we are beginning, is that God desires to fill our lives with goodness. What if God desires not for us to live lives limited by single stuff, but instead God desires to fill our lives with abundant goodness? So for this, take a look at the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians is nestled between the book of Philippians and the book of 1 Thessalonians. Some of y'all are cheating because you know it's going to be up here on the screen. So what's fascinating about Colossians is that Paul is writing to a church that he never met. He's writing to a church on behalf of his friend who started the church, and he writes to give them a word of encouragement. Most biblical scholars believe that this letter was then circulated among many churches within this region. And the book functions around this poem found in chapter 1, which personifies Jesus as the fullness of God, the pinnacle of our salvation and the way of life. Jesus is the head of this new body composed of God's people. In short, Colossians is a very Jesus-centric book. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised in Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you were dead, 
and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. In this section, Paul is comparing this old way of life to this new way of life. He refers to it also in the language of dead ways of life versus a living way of life. This new way of life is not found in religious practices and festivals and laws. It's found in Christ, who is at the heart of all of this, who redirects our life, who fills our lives with what we need. Our focus must therefore be on setting our mind on Christ, on seeking the things that he calls us to. And just in case the readers aren't understanding this comparative argument that Paul is getting at, he gets very practical in verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now rid yourselves of all such things, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Last week, as I was doing my normal time during the spiritual formation hour, visiting a couple classes, I, I poked my head in the nomad class and Ken Tipton waved me in, and I just said, no, I'll stand right here. I realized somebody was reading scripture, and I decided that I would do a U-turn when I realized they had used the phrase sexual immorality. It was like, nope, not having that conversation with this class <laughs> this particular Sunday. Is there anything more exciting than reading a laundry list of sins from one of our ancient forebears? There, these are some dicey things that are on this list. Again, Paul is framing this in the sense of this old way, this dead way, sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed and rage and malice and, and slander and filthy language, and then there is this new way of living. Contextually speaking, there's a lot going on here uh, within this specific list that Paul is writing to, of some things that were going on in Asia Minor and the Roman province, and even at face value as people living in 2019, we know that these things are not to our benefit. And if we're honest, we know that greed and anger and lust and rage and slander, all sorts of things lead to a decaying of our lives. And for Paul, following Jesus was the practice of putting off or purging this old self in order to put on this new self in Jesus. He uses this metaphor of old self dying in order to be raised in Jesus. And Paul doesn't want to stop with personal ethics because in verse 11, he dissolves the ethical and nationality of false identity compared to the inclusiveness and oneness of Christ, saying there is no Greek, there is no slave. In verse 18 through 25, he goes on to shift and to liberate the Roman social constructs of the day, saying that there is this new way of thinking about marriage. There is this new way of thinking about parenting and relationships to authorities and slavery and economic class systems. More specifically, Paul connects this to his letter to Philemon, which he writes to a slave master, asking him to welcome back his slave, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And so Paul is saying there is this old and dead way, and in Christ there is this new way. But we have to put off this old self. 
The Old Testament is full of some fascinating stories. There's probably no more interesting of a book than the book of Numbers. This book um, has a story of a talking donkey, um, Moses being denied to go into the promised land for striking a rock twice, and did I mention giants? Yes, there's giants in the book of Numbers. But one of the more intriguing stories comes from the book of Numbers chapter 25, to which we are told that the Hebrew people had fallen in with the locals. They were worshiping their gods. They were intermarrying. They were getting a little too friendly with some of the locals, if you get my drift. And we learn that God doesn't like that, and resulting in a plague that comes upon the people, killing 24,000 people. I guess that's one way to show your disapproval of going steady with the other boys and girls in the region. I guess the Hebrew people at the middle school dance were not giving enough room for the Holy Spirit, if you will. Moses' nephew, out of zeal, this guy named Phinehas, sees a man leaving the gathering and takes a woman into the tent with him, and so he decides that he's going to follow this man. And the scripture tells us that Phinehas threw the spear through both of them at the same time. In other words, they were together in certain ways. You see, when a man loves a woman, uh, certain things happen, and so one spear lunge, and he goes through both of them, and it says that the plague stopped immediately. Now, of course, this story raises some very interesting theological questions about how the Hebrew people understand God and God's wrath, how God works in the world, the causation of plagues and the murdering of two people for religious purposes. Yet, at the heart of this story is a very strong theological statement put to death what is killing you. Now, when I was in fourth grade, we did a scientific study on the human mouth. We learned about things like gingivitis and halitosis and tooth decay. In a fun experiment, the teacher gave us a big chocolate chip cookie with two toothpicks. That's an odd combination, right? And I gave out chocolate chip cookies last week. You're not getting them this week for this illustration, okay? We had donuts earlier. So we were told that we could not eat the chocolate chip cookie, but instead we had to use the toothpicks to carve out the chocolate chips from the cookie. And if we broke the cookie, we had to throw it away and start all over again. And the chocolate chips were supposed to be like the cavities in our tooth, just like a dentist doesn't want to shatter your tooth when they're trying to get a cavity out. We weren't supposed to shatter the cookie. And so I thought, in my brilliant, you know, nine, ten-year-old self, I'll just break the cookie and I'll eat it and then I'll get a new one. But as soon as I started to break the cookies, the teacher came and she quickly took it away and put it away. So you know what would be easier if we just didn't have a chocolate chip cookie, a chocolate less chocolate chip cookie, but who wants a cookie without chocolate chips in it? See, my chocolate chip problem is the problem that we often are presented with. There are these vices, these sins, these decay, this, this cavity, this depravity in our life that needs to be rooted out and thrown away. There's given more instructions of how there is sin and how do we get rid of sin in our life. But much like our chocolate chip cookie experiment, we find that our mind and our soul are often brittle and unwilling to give in so easily. We try again and again, often failing and leading us to giving up, thinking that we cannot rise to such lofty ways of living. And I think it raises a very important theological question about bad behavior and earthly natures and dead ways. What if we have misread and misunderstood what Paul and his New Testament counterparts are trying to say about such things? What if religion has focused too much on sin that is recorded in these laundry list of sins and not actually focused in on the source of the problem. 
You see, Jesus had this exchange with the Pharisees in the Gospels, the men who were so famous at following all the religious laws and regulations, and the conversation went something like this. I am distressed by you religious leaders. You so outwardly make sure that you're the bowl of your life is sparkling clean. You're good. You're really good at it. But you're blind to what God sees. You see, outwardly you make sure the bowl of your life is clean, sparkling clean. But what about the inside? What about the inside that is full of selfishness and corruption? Open your eyes. You not just need to clean the outside of your bowl, but you first have to focus on the inside. You see, without the Andy translation, Matthew records it this way, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and selfish indulgences. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the outside will be clean also. You see, I believe what Jesus is trying to argue is that religion forces us to always be worrying about the outside of our cup. You've got to appear righteous. You've got to appear as if you have everything together. Be sure to check all the religious check boxes, worship attendance, tithing, religious catchphrases, religious affiliation. But the root of the problem, Jesus is arguing, is that God cares about the inside of our lives, the very core of who we are. You cannot truly clean out the outside. You can't truly root out these dead things in our life without first addressing the soul. Have you ever gone deep sea fishing before? For some people, just the thought of going out on the waves makes you seasick just thinking about it. Well, most charter boat captains know to take you to where there's uh, coral reefs or, or a shipwreck where they know there's a wide collection of fifth fish. There's another method uh, where if you can't find the fish, you can try to draw them near you, and it's called chumming. This is exciting, and it's going to get you really hungry for lunch. Now, chum is typically a combination of, of smaller fish and unwanted fish parts cut into pieces and thrown into a bucket. So imagine a bucket full, well, you don't have to imagine, it's up there, a bucket full of dead fish heads and guts and blood. Anyone hungry for lunch? No? The chum is there and is then thrown into the water to attract fish to it. And it's a fascinating concept when you think about it. This disgusting bucket of dead, smelly things will actually help you land and catch a larger living thing. This is what Paul is trying to get at, at the second and more hopeful part of the verse. He says in verse 9, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on this new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but in Christ all is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility, and gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, and forgive one another of any grievances you have against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, Paul has reached this aha moment of the text. 
He's been talking about the the things that bring death and decay, this old stuff in our life. You can almost hear him saying, let's clean out this old stuff so that Jesus can fill our lives with the extraordinary. You see, I I believe the central idea of the text, what Paul is trying to get at here, is not to give us a laundry list of unethical things that we have in our life, a long list of things that are dead, that make us feel guilty for who we are. Instead, Paul is trying to point us to this greater thing found in Christ, best illustrated in verse 12, after he calls out the dead things to eradicate these things, this bad and decaying stuff, he calls us to clothe ourselves now with something new. The Greek word he uses here is enduo, which means to sink into, to put on, to clothe one's self. This is used by Jesus when he tells us to not worry about what we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll wear, because we ought to first seek first the kingdom. Jesus uses this word when he talks about a parable of a prodigal son, one who goes away, and it says when he comes back, his father clothes him with compassion, puts new rings on his finger. What Paul is trying to tell us is that this dead content in our life, in our bowl that Jesus talked about, is worthless, is decaying, but instead God desires to fill our lives with new things. Instead of rage and malice and envy and greed and sexual driven decisions, anger and slander, we could fill our lives with goodness and compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and love and unity and joy, for these things are the essence of Jesus. When you hear these words from Paul, if we just close our eyes, you feel like he's describing Jesus. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourself with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another of any grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since we are members of one body called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs for the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, Do it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God, our Father. You see, this is the core of the gospel. Jesus desires to transform our way of seeing ourselves in the world. Jesus desires to lead us away from these dead and decaying things so that we can fill our lives with the goodness of God. And in that goodness, we see God's love for us. And Jesus, we do not see the wrath of God desiring to wipe us out with a plague for our sinfulness. There is not a righteous person with an itchy spear finger waiting to drive it through our souls because of who we are. Instead, in Jesus, we see the fullness of God's compassion to journey with us as we are in the process of cleaning out our lives and replacing it with the extraordinary. You see, Jesus is inviting us to a soul-centering question, a question that goes to the very core of our existence. Are we willing to forego death in order to find new life in him? 
Are we willing to let Jesus clean out and dump out these dead things in our life in order to be filled with the extraordinary? At the end of every school year when I was a child, we had a field day. Do y'all remember field days? I don't know if they had them around here. Uh, There was all sorts of individual team activities and sack race and spoon egg races and things like that. One particular game sticks out in my memory. It was called the Bucket Challenge. So each class would line up in a straight line, and at one end you would have this large tub of water, and you had to pick up a bucket, fill it up, and each person pass it down to fill up an empty tub at the other end, right? So the game begins. Water's sloshing everywhere. Everybody's getting soaked. Empty buckets begin to be filled. The problem was my f- class was falling behind, and so I needed to change the circumstances of that situation. Instead of waiting for each person to pass the bucket down the line, I ran to the beginning of the line, filled up the bucket, ran to the end of the line, dumped it out, and kept repeating this process until my teacher came and stopped me, and I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, instead of allowing us to work together as a team to fill this container, you have emptied our chances. One of my favorite books to read to our girls is called, Have You Filled a Bucket Today? And I'd like to read it for you. It says, all day long, everyone in the world walks around carrying an invisible bucket. You can't see it, but it's there. Your bucket has one purpose only. Its purpose is to hold your good thoughts and good feelings about yourself. You feel very happy and good when your bucket is full. You feel very sad and lonely when your bucket is empty. Other people feel the same way too. They're happy when their buckets are full, and they're sad when their buckets are empty. It's great to have a full bucket, and this is how it works. Other people can fill your bucket, and you can fill theirs. So how do you fill a bucket? You fill a bucket when you show love to someone, when you say and do something kind, or even when you give someone a smile. That's being a bucket filler. A bucket filler is a loving, caring person who says and does nice things that make other people feel special. When you make someone feel special, you are filling a bucket. A bucket filler is a loving, caring person who says and does nice things to make other people feel special. When you make other people feel special, you are filling a bucket. But you can also dip into a bucket and take some good feelings out. You dip into a bucket when you make fun of someone, when you say and do mean things, or even when you ignore someone. That's being a bucket dipper. A bully is a bucket dipper. When you hurt others, you dip into their bucket. You will dip into your bucket, too. Many people who dip have an empty bucket. They think that if they fill their own bucket by dipping into someone else's, but that will never work. You never will fill your bucket when you dip into someone else's. But guess what? When you fill someone else's bucket, you are filling your own bucket too. You feel good when you help others feel good. All day long, we are either filling up or dipping into someone other's bucket by the way that we do and the way that we are. Trying to fill a bucket and see what happens. Bucket filling is easy to do. It doesn't matter how young or old you are. It doesn't matter or it doesn't cost any money. It doesn't take much time. And remember, when you fill someone else's bucket, you fill your own bucket too. When you're a bucket filler, you make your way home 
You make your home and your school and your neighborhood a better place for all. Bucket filling makes everyone feel good. So why not decide to be a bucket filler today and every day? Just start each day by saying to yourself, I'm going to do something to fill someone's bucket today. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, writes that we have the opportunity to fill the bucket of our lives. That we can choose to fill our buckets with anger and malice and slander and such things, but in reality, this is just emptying our bucket. Instead, we could choose to fill our buckets with compassion and with kindness, humility and gentleness and the like. Such things are the very essence of Jesus. Not only do we have the opportunity to fill our lives with the goodness of Jesus, but we have the brilliant opportunity to fill others with the goodness of Jesus. We're beginning a new conversation today, Brimming Buckets, in which we are going to navigate what it looks like to fill our lives and the lives of others with the goodness of Jesus. Each week, we're going to encounter one of these extraordinary facets of Jesus' essence, zeroing in on what it means and how it takes shape in our lives and how we might be able to live it out into others' lives. As one author put it, generosity is the most natural outward expression of an inward attitude of compassion and loving kindness.